Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Matt Chorley, and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. Over the Christmas break, we're revisiting our series, The Political Editors, speaking to the people who wrote politics for the Times over the past half century. It's one of my favourite things we did in 2023. In today's episode, Philip Webster, the political editor of the Times from 1992 until 2010. I don't think that other people in the world would share the view that there is mounting chaos. Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. It is time to put up or shut up. A new dawn has broken, has it not? This is a decisive moment for the world economy. Now the decision has been made to leave, we need to find the best way. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. I have been repeatedly assured that there was no party. Growth. Growth and growth. Some mistakes were made. Half a century of politics told by the people who wrote the first draft of history for the Times. This is The Political Editors. On this episode, Philip Webster, the longest serving political editor from 1992 to 2010. On the rise of Tony Blair, the fall of Gordon Brown and being taken hostage at gunpoint with Neil Kinnock. I'd made it my business to make myself known to Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. And I know they, uh, they both did trust me. Sometimes Blair shook his head and said, I wish I hadn't trusted you. It was easily the tensest situation I'd ever been in after writing a story, because had I been wrong, probably wouldn't be talking to you now. So we were locked up and treated as if we were criminals. And uh, led by Neil Kinnock, we sang Jerusalem. And the soldiers patrolled round and round the hut with their guns while we prayed for rescue. What a time to become political editor. In 1992, Labour on the march to power, and then they weren't. John Major, the man who wasn't going to win anything, suddenly wins a surprise election. And you're, you're right in the thick of it as political editor of the Times. Absolutely. It was a wonderful time to take over. I'd been heavily involved covering the fall of Thatcher. But yes, the shock victory for John Major. It became clear in the last week of the 92 election that there was a chance. I remember going to watch Neil Kinnock speak in uh, Blackburn and was standing at the back uh, with Glenys Kinnock, uh, who I knew well, obviously I knew Neil Kinnock well, and he just wasn't firing. Everybody expected him to be prime minister within a few days. And uh, I said to Glenys, what's, what's wrong with Neil today? And she, she said to me, he's, he's worried. We're, we're not absolutely sure we're breaking through. And she turned out to be quite right. So we were into that period of John Major taking over and then hitting trouble almost straight away. Black Wednesday within months, the party in total revolt, 
sleaze started coming out everywhere. I have made it clear from the very outset that these matters must be properly examined. Why else would I have set up the inquiries? Many people criticised me for doing so and said, why have you done this? You could have brushed it aside after a week of parliamentary difficulty and it would all have gone away. I didn't do that. And why didn't I do that? Because I happened to care about the reputation of Parliament in the short term and the long term. He was having the roughest time possible. And it was the most miserable five years for, for John Major and the, and the Tories to endure, during which time, of course, Blair and Brown were just building up their plans for leadership and, and for government. At what point did you think, OK, these are the guys I need to get in with? Did you spot them because you were around Parliament for such a long time, you know, when they first became MPs in the 1980s? Was it when they got onto the front bench? When did you realise that these were the politicians you needed to, to get to know? I think I'd be quite honest with you here, Matt. It was when Peter Mandelson told me, these are the two guys you need to be watching. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and Peter told me a lot of things that were, uh, were right over the years. I knew Peter very well. He was Director of Communications. And it was quite obvious that at that time, he saw in Blair and Brown, who both came in in 1983 together, Labour's route back to power. Who is best? Who can who will play best at the box office? Who will not simply appeal to the traditional supporters and customers of the Labour Party, but who will bring in those extra additional voters that we need in order to win convincingly? It's really interesting the the Peter Mandelson question because almost every politician thinks that they would be a better leader. Do you think there was any point where Peter Mandelson thought he could be the the man to be the front man of this? modernised Labour Party. It's interesting that he always seemed to have an idea of what it should be and opted for Blair as the right person to deliver it rather than pushing himself. Absolutely. I think he, more than anyone, knew that he would never be the person to do it, but he wanted to be the person to engineer the leader of New Labour. He knew he wasn't the kind of guy who was ever going to get the loyalty from the membership that would be required and then from the voters. But he certainly knew in his own mind what Brown first, there's no doubt, he saw Brown, first of all, as a potential leader. But then Blair, after they'd done a few years working together, he saw in Blair the guy who would take Labour to victory. As it turned out, he took him to three victories. And you pulled off quite a clever trick, if you like, by being friends with both the Blair camp and the Brown camp, which as the time passed when they were in government after winning in 97, became increasingly important. How did you manage to pull that off rather than being seen as, you know, a Blairite reporter or a Brownite reporter and getting getting the tidbits that came with that? Well, I knew the dangers of being seen to be in with one side or the other. And therefore, it was always my my aim to be trusted by both sides. Now, it so happened that I was very, very friendly with two of the leading figures uh, on either side, in the sense that Ed Balls was a a lifetime friend. We come from the same city of Norwich. We support the same football team. We'd always been close friends. We played a lot of football together. He's a lot younger than me, you'll quickly say, but we played in the same football team for quite a long time. And Alistair Campbell, a very good friend. He'd been in the lobby with me. We grew up knowing each other as young journalists in the lobby. So I, I know I was trusted by both sides. I'd made it my business to make myself known to Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. And I know they, uh, they both 
did trust me. Sometimes Blair shook his head and said, I wish I hadn't trusted you. But um, I'm glad to say uh, if I run into them now, which I do occasionally, it's always very friendly. Okay, let's talk about some of those things you alluded to. Uh, Peter Mandelson and the Euro. It's hard to imagine now in a post-Brexit age for lots of people that the the big debate that once dominated British politics was about whether or not we would join the Euro. And Tony Blair wanted to, Gordon Brown didn't. And you spent probably many hours you wish you could get back chronicling the ins and outs of that debate. Yes, it was an amazing period in 97. Blair had come on able to do anything, really, he felt. And he, I think, saw the possibility of going into the euro early in his term. The FT ran a story in August of of 97 saying that Blair was on the point of launching a move to get Britain into the euro. And when that story dropped from the Financial Times that night, I rang a certain source who was the football friend that I mentioned to you earlier and said, what do I do with this? Uh, He said, if I were you, I wouldn't follow it. From that moment on, I knew there was a hell of a story around because if Blair wanted to go in, quite clearly Brown didn't. You know, this might be a story that either ended up with us going into the Euro or Gordon Brown resigning. So I set about trying to get that out into the open. And and I did it in a very strange way. I I persuaded Ed Balls, but mainly Charlie Whelan, who was then uh, Gordon's press spokesman, to get Gordon to do an interview with me on a Friday afternoon, when, knowing what I knew, uh, I'd put questions that I thought might well be able to uh, get me to a point where I could write that we were not going to go in the era (laughs) without a fight. (laughs) And... um, the words he came out with were enough for me to write that Brown and Blair were not going to go into the euro in the first term of a Labour government. And that was a market-moving story, if it were right. It was a market-moving story if it were wrong. And the story came out on the Saturday morning. I did the interview on a Friday. Alistair Campbell was aware of the interview, but again, he didn't know what was going to be said. Blair tried in vain to find Alistair when the first edition of The Times dropped. Charlie Whelan, as we know, had placed himself in the Red Lion in uh, Whitehall. Oh dear, you know, I don't normally get calls off Tony Blair, so I went outside the pub, found a little private spot. And, so you did at um, least put your drink down to take the call from Tony Blair? Well, no, I might have had a spritzer in my one hand. But, you know. <laughs> when contacted by other journalists he merely said phil webster is a very good journalist and put the phone down so the story rang ran and it's up on my wall at home blair rules out membership of the single currency and there it was saturday morning i get a call at home from the said mr mandelson saying philip over the years you've spoken to me a lot and when you've spoken to me what you've written has been right you will find that what you wrote today will be wrong and talk about getting a chill going down the back of your neck. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm thinking, oh, my God. And it was 10 days before Brown himself stood up in the House of Commons to confirm the story that I'd written that Saturday morning. Bearing some fundamental and unforeseen change in economic circumstances, making a decision this parliament to join is not realistic. And to his credit, Peter Mandelson came up to me in the lobby that morning. I was down there at about half 11. He said, Phil, 
you're going to find that your story is being stood up this afternoon by Gordon. I sort of knew it was, but it was nice to hear it from Peter Madison <laughs> as well. It was one of those, it was easily the tensest story uh, or the tensest situation I'd ever been in after writing a story, because had I been wrong, probably wouldn't be talking to you now, Matt. You know, it was <laughs> it was not a story to get wrong. The, the markets hated it, of course. Uh, and when my story appeared on the Saturday and the markets opened on the Monday, Gordon Brown was at an event at the Stock Exchange, as it happened. And as he switched on this brand new system in the in the Stock Exchange, everything went red. And <laughs> that, that was the, the market falling. So I think Gordon must have thought, what have I done? What have I done? You did do a good trade in market-moving interviews, Phil. That one was at the very early days of the new Labour government. You then did one, you were on the... On the golf course, as you often were, I think, on the golf course, the 14th hole, and you got a phone call. Would you go and do an interview with Tony Blair, which accidentally or deliberately ended up hastening his departure from power? Yes. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt that the purpose of the interview was to elongate his stay as Prime Minister. It was the last day of August in, uh, in 2006. He'd already said he would go, but the Brownites just couldn't wait any longer. They wanted to get their man in straight away. Uh, yes, I was on. Uh, I was at a Sheringham golf course in Norfolk, and I got the call from David Hill. Can you come down tomorrow and and interview the Tony? And uh, I said, Yeah, sure. And I'd fully expected to be given the story that the forthcoming conference that September, so just a few weeks later, was going to be his last. And as I walked into Checkers, and really no fripperies, I thought, I'll get straight to it. So, you know, is the conference going to be your last one, Prime Minister? Why on earth are you asking that, Phil? He used to call me Phil. Why on earth are you asking me that? And I said, well, there's been a hell of a lot of speculation that it will be your last. And he said, well, it's certainly not the case. And no, the next conference wouldn't be his last. And I must have asked that question eight or nine times. I could see David Hill, who was watching the interview, and Jonathan Powell. Even my friend, Mr. Riddle, I could feel was feeling slightly uncomfortable at the number of times I kept asking the same question. And Blair himself, who's got an extraordinary patience, finally said, Phil, I think this one's the last time, don't you? And said, look, I'm not going. My successor will be given ample time. And I thought, my God. That's a better story than the one I thought I was going to get. And, um, and basically, and, all hell then broke loose with people who thought well, yeah. he was going to go suddenly enraged that Tony Blair was still planning to hang on. Yeah. What happened then was the story appeared. Blair defies party over leaving date was the splash headline in the Times. Over in Birmingham, a number of Brownites were having a meal. It became the Balti House plot. And in the Days that ensued, one front bencher after another resigned the government saying they, they no longer wanted to serve Tony Blair. And within a few days, he did a stand-up uh, interview for, I think, Sky, in which he, yes, said it would be his last conference. So it was an interview that precipitated his, uh, his fall, I think. The truth is you can't go on forever. That's why it's right that this is my last conference as leader. 
And then obviously, having given his successor, as he promised, uh, enough time, were you surprised having seen the rise of Gordon Brown as a backbencher, then a frontbencher, then as Chancellor, seen him up close so much? Were you surprised then that someone who'd hankered after the job of Prime Minister for so long seemed to struggle in it? Yeah. I didn't think he'd have as rough a time as he did. But in my view, he took the job far too late. By then, three terms of Blair, and it was almost in the same position as Major after three terms of of Thatcher. The country was beginning to tire of Labour. Had he done what he was advised to do and gone for a, a very, very swift election, If you remember, Matt, there was a foot and mouth outbreak in 2007, not long after Brown took over. He was deemed to have handled it extremely well. He was in the honeymoon period of his leadership uh, and he was very popular. Uh, Gordon Brown is not a gambler, but had he gambled and gone for it, then I think he probably would have won. But instead, we had three years of trouble. Uh, You know, we had the banking collapse, everything. Although he was, again, deemed to have handled that reasonably well, the country was not in a mood to re-elect Labour again in, 20, in 2010. I've heard a lot of people say that if Blair and Brown had carried on in the same jobs, they might well have got another term. But that's something uh, we'll never know. This is The Political Editors, episode four with Philip Webster. Coming up, getting stuck on Margaret Thatcher's battle bus, being held hostage with Neil Kinnock, and the perils of being too friendly with the politicians you're writing about. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So your time as political editor sort of ended with a messy, messy Labour government, economic turmoil, heralding a decade or more of a, of a Tory prime minister in uh, Downing Street, which actually is how you started. You started in Westminster in the early 1970s as a press gallery reporter. Take us right back to that time. And how much did the job, not just the politics, but how much did the job change? Because we were there for such a long stretch in terms of the the technology, your access to politicians, and the way you went about reporting on politics at the time? The technological changes in my time were massive. The biggest of all, of course, was the way 
I got my copy across to the office for years and years and years. Wherever I was in the, in the UK, covering by-elections, traveling with a prime minister, I had to find a phone. And I remember with Margaret Thatcher in the, the 1983 election, I was on her battle bus and uh, we, were, we were getting a bit fed up. We'd been on this bus for, it seemed like, weeks and we didn't see much of her in terms of talking to us. And one Friday afternoon, her staff said, OK, we're going to Newbury Racecourse. The Prime Minister will give you a full rundown on how she sees the forthcoming G7. And a platform had been erected. She stood up there as if she was making a speech to several thousand racegoers. In fact, there were about 30 journalists. And she came out with a lot of rather aggrandizing stuff about how she was now the longest serving leader and she was she would have a big influence at the forthcoming GA. We rather mischievously saw this as Thatcher decides to conquer the world type story. We thought we'd got some good stuff, but we, of course, 83, no mobile phones. What did we do? So we persuaded our bus driver, please driver, can you stop at Reading and we'll jump out of the bus and try and find some phones. And that's what happened. He pulled up, he's a rather gruff driver, and he said, you've got half an hour, and if you're not back here in half an hour, you'll have to find your own way home. And uh, we jumped out of the bus and just ran, <laughs> and ran and ran. I was pretty fast. I got to the station. I knew there'd be um, phones there. I phoned my copy over, you know, that's just to take over the world, and ran back. About four of us made it. And we then pleaded with the driver to wait for the rest, and he wouldn't. And he off he went, drove back to London, and most of the guys had to find their own way back uh, on the train, having filed their, filed their copy. So it's just one example of the madness that you had to go through in those days. Once with Neil Kinnock in the African bush, we'd got the most wonderful story when we were, uh, we'd landed in the wrong airstrip in Zimbabwe, and there were three or four young soldiers there with Kalashnikovs. Uh, they didn't look old enough to have guns. There we were with uh, the red-haired leader of the opposition. He was wearing a bomber jacket and he was swearing his head off uh, and exp expressing fury at the way his, uh, his travelling party, his wife and press officers were being treated, as well as the way we, the journalists, were being treated. And they, they couldn't understand a word. Uh, even if they could have speak, spoken English, I don't think they'd have um, understood much of what uh, Neil Kinnock was saying. So we were locked up and treated as if we were criminals. And uh, led by Neil Kinnock, we sang Jerusalem in this hut. And the soldiers patrolled round and round the hut with their guns while we prayed for rescue. And after a couple of hours, by then it was getting dark, we saw some lights coming down the mountain. And it was the uh, British High Commissioner's welcoming party, which had been at the correct airstrip, not the one that we landed at. Uh -huh. And uh, I'll never forget when he arrived and apologised to Neil Kinnock for the, for the way we'd been treated and held up. So I had this wonderful story, Kinnock held at gunpoint in the African bush, which was in my head and I couldn't wait to file it. But what did I file it with? There we were, stuck in, a, in the middle of nowhere in Zimbabwe. We took a decision amongst the only 12 of us, and we said, look, we can't file. There's no way of filing. Let's every man for himself when we get to the hotel. And we went to a place called uh, Inyanga. And again, the, we were, the first people off the bus were the people who got the phones. 
And that was the only way of getting the story across. Today, it would have been a mobile phone job. That's the big thing that changed in my time. I just want to ask you, during your your time at The Times, you covered, what, seven prime ministers? I mean, you had nine editors in that time, so I don't know what that says about journalism or politics. (laughs) Did you feel like you became friends with any of those prime ministers? And is that a problem if journalists become too close? There is a problem, I think, if you become too close. I wouldn't say I was friends with any of them. I mentioned Ed Balls. There's no doubt that he was a friend, but he was a friend before he got anywhere near Gordon Brown, and he remains a friend today. I mean, I became very friendly in his early days with John Major. He came in in 1979, so he was an up-and-coming backbencher when I took my first steps in the lobby in 1981. And I made, yes, I made friends. I, he became a contact, but contact, but enough to, enough to be able to ring up on a Sunday, you know, the game, Matt, uh, and say, look, what do you think is going to happen this week? You know, what do you think will happen with this bill or that? But the, the higher the MP goes up the uh, greasy pole, the, the, the less easy it is to have those kind of friendly relationships. And you know, that you're soon going to be writing stories, material, that they're just not going to like. You can't afford to treat them as bosom friends. You can have a friendly relationship with them. I certainly had very friendly relations with Major, Blair, Brown and David Cameron. There's no doubt about that. I'm not ashamed to say that. But were they close friends? Of course not. But they were people who I could ring up and have a conversation with and uh, probably could today. What a career for Phil Webster, the political of the Times from 1992 until 2010. In episode five, his replacement, Roland Watson, on the fall of Gordon Brown and the formation of the coalition. That's on the next episode here on Politics Without the Boring Bits. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.